Hey everyone, welcome back to Explain Like I'm 5, or ELI5, the weekly podcast where we take the questions you always wanted to ask and talk about them in a way that's easy to understand. Kevin's taking a break this week, but I'm one of your hosts, Tim, and for our special topic of ELI5 Christmas, we have a special guest with us, Brian Earle. Hey Tim, thanks for having me on. Now, Brian is the host of the Christmas Past podcast, which was one of the very first podcasts on the topic of Christmas and one of my very favorites. So if you enjoy today's episode, I highly recommend that you go check it out. So Brian, why don't we start with an age-old question, which I get asked all the time, and that is, why do people in the US say Merry Christmas and in the UK they say Happy Christmas? When did this, this, this uh, difference appear? It appeared around the Victorian period. The people back then also said Merry Christmas, but a couple things were going on around that time. Uh, Christmas before the Victorian period had fallen into what you might call a bit of disrepair. It was still celebrated, but nowhere near at the level it is now. And the way that it was celebrated was a lot more like the way we celebrate St. Patrick's Day or Mardi Gras or New Year's Eve. It was this kind of carnival-like celebration outside in the streets rather than something that families celebrate in the home. And part and parcel of all of that was the way that it was you would express a, a happiness of the season to one another. The common phrase, and by common I mean sort of low class, was to say Merry Christmas. The word Merry was associated with maybe a bit of um, oversaturated with sentimentality and ha had also connotations of the kind of raucous partying that uh, the Christmas season had, had gone on to take. When the Victorians decided to quote unquote rebrand Christmas, they wanted to domesticate it, make it something that families celebrate in the home the way that we nowadays celebrate things like Easter. And when all of that was happening, they wanted to do away with the word merry. And this was also around the time where the media were really starting to come into their own and you could propagate messages uh, more easily. So one thing that happened was King George V, when he started doing his Christmas radio addresses, he would say, Happy Christmas, and that really caught on. This was also around the time where Christmas was coming into its own around America, and we were still kind of feeling things out. We were taking a cue from a Vic the Victorians, but also making Christmas uniquely our own. And so we kept Merry Christmas while it was still dying out over there. And nowadays you find that it's a little bit of both over in England. Uh, they say happy more than merry, but they still do say merry to some extent, whereas we say it exclusively. That's fascinating. Thank you for explaining that. Now let's turn to something that's uh, a little bit more common across different Christmas cultures, um, but might need some explaining like I'm five. Um, where does the red and green colors uh, that you usually associate, from, uh, associate with Christmas, where do they come from? Well, there are a couple different ways to answer that question. So first of all, a lot of the things that we associate with Christmas actually predate Christmas. And one of the first signs of Christmas being associated with red and green is from the much, much older tradition of decorating homes with uh, evergreen foliage during the winter. There have always been wintertime celebrations because older civilizations were based largely around agriculture. And a couple things happen when the, the fall comes. You have your harvest. You have to thin out your herds because it's too expensive to feed them over the winter. And you've just finished your winemaking or beer making season. And it's too cold to work. So you have this period where you have nothing to do. 
You have a lot of time to hang out with your friends and you have lots of food and drink and all of that. And so wintertime celebrations go back a long, long time. And then different cultures would bring their own little rituals and mythology into it. So decorating the home with evergreens could become associated with things like trying to uh, ward off evil spirits, trying to ensure a good harvest for the next year and so forth. But holly was considered an especially important plant because any plants that didn't lose their leaves during the fall or, or during the winter were assumed to have some kind of something special about them. Holly, uh, mistletoe and the like were given special import. And to some extent, they were also believed to have maybe healing properties or, or things along those lines. However, as you move forward throughout the history of Christmas, red and green were not the only game in town. Especially pre-Victorian, you'd see blue and gold. You'd even see older images of Santa Claus where he was wearing either black or blue or green robes. So while holly wow. and evergreen uh, foliage may have been one of the first instances of red and green associated with Christmas, it kind of came back in the early 20th century. And again, this is where the media and corporations that have a lot of money to sort of push their own version or image of, of Christmas come into play. So starting in the early 1930s, you see companies like Coca-Cola which are putting out lots of images of Christmas to associate their brand with the, the, the shopping season. And they are using very specific shades of red and green. And that's um, there's an old myth that Coca-Cola more or less invented Santa Claus. It's not true, but they absolutely help to popularize the common vision that we all have of Santa Claus today. Now, you mentioned Santa Claus, and we have to cover where Santa Claus originated from on a Christmas podcast. Yeah, well, um, he originated from St. Nicholas, who was a real guy from the 4th century in what's now Turkey. It was called Myra back then. And after he died, he became this sort of all-purpose patron saint. And he was the patron saint of brewers, of pawnbrokers. And there were all kinds of legends of him um, being able to bring people back from the dead. There's this really gruesome myth about how these three travelers went to an inn and the innkeeper uh, killed and dismembered their bodies. And that St. Nicholas stayed at that same inn was, and was able to resurrect and, and uh, reanimate their bodies and all of that. And so there's a lot of mythology about St. Nicholas that we don't keep today, of course, but that's really the basis for Santa Claus. Now, what happened was, I guess starting around the Victorian period or slightly before, he starts to take on some of these elfin witch-like characteristics that you find of Northern European folk myths. See, Christmas is kind of like a snowball insofar as as it moves, it not only gets bigger, but also picks up little pieces of everything that's in its path. Mm -hmm. So Santa Claus had these characteristics of... Um, yeah, these, these kind of characters that children might meet in a folk myth who might ask them some questions, and if they're good, they'll be rewarded, and if they're bad, they'll be punished. And starting in around the 1870s, we start to see the image of Santa that we know today coming into its own, largely from Thomas Nast, who was doing illustrations in Harper's Magazine. Later, you had artists like Haddon Sunblom and... Um, and others of their contemporaries who are starting to make Santa Claus look a little more like what we know today. If you look at some of those illustrations from the 1870s, from uh, Thomas Nast, etc., he's really small. He's small and squat. He has pointy mm. ears sometimes. Uh, even in the poem, A Visit from St. Nicholas, he's in a miniature sleigh with eight tiny reindeers. He goes down the chimney because he's an elf. He's small. The notion of Santa Claus as just like a regular guy, a six-foot grandfatherly figure, again, 
really comes from about the 1930s. The artist Haddon Sundblom, who was working for Coca-Cola, created that Santa Claus that we all know and love today. Which is interesting when you think about it, because that means that there are people alive today who are actually older than our current vision of Santa Claus. What my five-year-old would love to know um, is who or what or when to thank the tradition of getting Christmas presents. Well, gifts have always been part of these kinds of wintertime celebrations and Christmas too, but it wasn't until Christmas became a major cultural holiday that that sort of uh, started up. So again, Christmas has always been a holiday, but for a long, long time, really only until about 150 years ago, it was one of those minor days on the church calendar. It did not really get a lot of play, and it certainly wasn't a big cultural celebration. When the Victorians took over and domesticated it, this was also happening right around the time of the Industrial Revolution. There were a lot Mm -hmm. of industrialism and commerce going on, a lot of goods being produced in factories and shipped long distances. And it was also a time where you started to notice the rise of the middle class. In a lot of ways, the Victorian Christmas was a celebration of the middle class lifestyle. And again, we have the media to thank because they were showing how the royals were celebrating their Christmases. And you have this new class of people who had a lot more money and wanted to emulate the royals. So a lot of the traditions that we have today are really the result of people trying to do like the royals were doing, including having a Christmas tree. That was something that... um, Prince Albert brought from his native Germany, a popular magazine of the time, wrote, did a big write-up about it, and then it instantly became a big fad. And those weren't even popular here in America until around the 1870s. But it was around that time that Christmas became a major gift-giving holiday, where it was primarily based around the idea of shopping and giving. I see. That's interesting. I never tied it to the Industrial Revolution. And Mm -hmm. it seems like we have a lot to thank the Victorian era for uh, as far as Christmas goes. Most of what we celebrate today is influenced very, very heavily by the Victorians. Mm. Now, another big part of Christmas is the music. Is there something about Christmas music that makes it sound, you know, particularly Christmassy? And why do most traditional Christmas songs or the images you have from TV or movies sort of come from the the 40s, 50s, 60s type of era? Yeah, it's an interesting question because a lot of those, and it, it sort of ties into why they sound the way that they do, because a lot of popular music from that era was inspired by jazz standards. And it's no coincidence that you have people like Bing Crosby, who are mm-hmm. some of the, the biggest names in what we now refer to as the American standards of Christmas music. So there are a lot of things that come from other countries, from other times, the traditional carols, but most popular music that we associate with Christmas in America is, as you correctly point out, from the 1940s and 50s. Every decade that came since has sort of left their mark. We will get Feliz Navidad from the 70s or Christmas wrapping from the 80s or the 90s gave us the inescapable all I want for Christmas is you. Although Mm -hmm. I, I do have to say the last 20 years haven't really produced a heck of a lot in terms of enduring classics. But there was just a big songwriting machine going on back in the 40s and 50s that produced most of what we have and and probably will have. Wow. Yeah, that's the one thing that's becoming very apparent in um, all the background you have on Christmas is just how it's changed over the years with culture and different events. It really is true that most people would be surprised to realize how much of Christmas that we celebrate now is really, really new. People from even four or five generations ago would take a look at the way that we celebrate and they would barely recognize it. They'd wonder what this is with the Christmas tree. That is a very new tradition. Uh, Even giving gifts, very, very new. Wrapping paper 
is one of the newer things that we do. Um, and actually, there's an interesting story there, too, because it was common sometimes to wrap gifts in, in tissue paper. But the idea of festive gift wrap was really because one day the Hallmark Brothers, who ran a store in North Carolina, um, had run out of, of tissue paper. And all they had in the back room was some of this fancy envelope lining they had imported from France to use for their stationery. They said, here, why don't you use this again uh, instead? And it just flew off the shelves. And that's really where we get this whole tradition of wrapping gifts uh, in the way that we currently do. So, Wow, that's interesting. Yeah, there's a lot about it that's, that's evolving and continues to evolve. It's never going to be done. So I think some of the things that we're seeing happen in real time are the advent of the ironic, ugly Christmas sweater, right? That's a, a, a tradition that we've seen come out of nowhere within our lifetimes. We can trace that That's back right. to uh, some parties that were happening in, in Brooklyn in the late 90s. It was really this this uh, hipster trend from New York that became the juggernaut that it is. And I think another evolution that we're watching happen in real time is the length of the Christmas season. Mm. Another thing that's changed over the years in early times, the period leading up to Christmas was what we know as the Advent season. It was a period of fasting and restraint and all of that. And the Christmas right. season began on Christmas and ended 12 days later, like the 12 days of Christmas. It ended on 12th sure. night. However, for a while, Christmas was something that you would maybe put up your tree a day before Christmas, if you had one at all, two days before Christmas. In the early 19th, 20th century, that's when retailers like Macy's and Wanamaker's and Woolworth's were saying, hey, why don't we make it so that the Christmas season starts on Thanksgiving? So you have this five-week season for shopping. We accept the Christmas season as being the five weeks between Thanksgiving and Christmas. That is completely arbitrary and very new. And I believe we're actually watching that start to change again, where Hallmark is starting to run movies in October. Uh, you're starting to see the, it's been true for a long time that you'd see decorations on the shelves starting even before Halloween. And I'm convinced that within one or two generations, that's going to be a mainstream accepted idea that the Christmas season starts sometime in October. Well, you heard it here first then on this podcast, but I, I have to say, Brian, I'm sure it makes someone like you um, very happy that Christmas starts earlier and earlier each year. I know that you run your podcast uh, throughout the year to remind people that Christmas is um, coming up in December. Well, when you celebrate all year round, the whole notion of the Christmas season is fairly arbitrary, but it does make me happy to know that others will accept the idea. If Christianity didn't originate from sort of a northern country it came from you know the middle east uh, why would it be that there's a snow snowy or wintry landscape aesthetic that's given to christmas well, it's really as Christianity rolled through Europe and started to pick up a lot of the traditions like we already mentioned of things like decorating with evergreens during the winter, etc. It's where we get a lot of the wintry imagery and a lot of that really old uh, traditional imagery and, and practices. So it didn't start out uh, where it ended up, but of course it had to move through those places and picked up little pieces of, of their uh, traditions. Uh, with that said, I grew up in New England where I've seen plenty of my uh, my share of white Christmases. I live in California now and it just doesn't make sense when I go to Starbucks and the windows hmm. are festooned with those uh, you know, snowflake decorations. It really doesn't seem to add up. And it's true for a lot of people, even here in America, where Christmas is the dominant cultural holiday of the year. Uh, there's, you know, hearing songs about snow and seeing movies and pictures that contain snow where they've never seen a white Christmas and maybe never will. Makes sense. So a final question, uh, and you talked about moving through uh, different parts of the world. Uh, one of the 
uh, topics that you had a fascinating whole episode on, I think back in season three of Christmas Past, was about NORAD. Yeah. Uh, and so the question is, how does NORAD and Google and other sites track Santa? Why is that even a, a thing and how is it done? Well, it all started by accident, and I forget the year, but a local newspaper had erroneously published the phone number for NORAD in a Christmas ad saying that you can call the Santa Claus hotline and tell Santa what you want for the year. So kids started calling. There's a, a colonel named Harry Shoup who was manning the, the phone that day. And the phone rang and it was the kind of thing where if that phone rang, you, you would break into a sweat before you answered it because it was never good news. He answers the phone and a kid is on the other line saying, are you Santa Claus? And he was very quick thinking, Colonel Shoup was. It didn't take him long to figure out what must be going on and decided to pretend he was Santa Claus. And then th that's how the tradition started. Now, NORAD says that the way that they track Santa is through their quote unquote integrated defense system. So the radar, the sonar, the fighter jets, all of the things that they knew, use for the things that NORAD legitimately does throughout the year, right. they're using to ensure Santa's safe travel. Um, how s Google and other sites do it, I really couldn't speak to that. The NORAD is the classic and uh, the, the, the longest running program of its kind. Well, I certainly learned a lot today. Uh, so thank you so much, Brian, for joining us this week. Oh, well, uh, thank you very much for having me on, and Merry Christmas to you and your listeners. Did you learn something new today? Enjoyed a new format with our guest speaker, Brian? I want to say a big thank you to Brian for joining us on today's episode. And if any of the particular questions piqued your interest, there's plenty more content where it came from. Brian has a whole podcast called Christmas Past, and I'd really recommend you go check it out on wherever you get your podcasts. Brian's season for this year's Christmas is about to launch next Thursday. So check out the back catalog and come back next week for the, the launch of that season. It's going to be amazing.